0: Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I am your host, Kay Simone, and before I get into anything else, I want to say I'm so appreciative of you. Like, the engagement, the conversations that I'm having on my TikToks surrounding true crime, and y'all tuning in... I I said it before, like, this is a Black girl's dream come true, and it could have been two of y'all, ten of y'all, or none of y'all. I said it in my intro, like, I could have been talking to my damn self, but here I am with the audience, and y'all are tuning in, and y'all are riding this fucking wave with me. I'm so appreciative. I went from posting my first episode to scheduling interviews and doing case studies about true crime, and... Your girl is blown away and so humbled by your support. And this episode is going to be on the DC Snipers. It's going to be two parts. I do mention that later on. And I'm going to start this off with an event that took place February 16th of 2002. Now, this is going to be a quote from 17-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo. He was 17 at the time. And I'm going to start this off with a quote. A voice inside me said, don't 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 I thought Lee you cannot face John unless you do this I pointed the .45 caliber gun to her face and in the instant I saw not only her but me my old self that I hated the scared hurt self that night Lee boy Malvo died and I pulled the trigger in an instant she too was gone now y'all this is in go- quote <laughs> shit now, this is gonna be the first of thirty seven shootings that left seventeen dead. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it before I get into this episode, I do want to point out that this is going to be a two-part. Now I do mention this later on, but I'm gonna mention it now as well. This is going to be a two-part episode. In this first part, I'm taking a deep dive into the backgrounds of John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo. These are the DC Snipers and their backgrounds are so important because it leads up to the murders that took place in 2002. And I want to apologize for any technical difficulties, because once again, anger got me fucked off. But it's fine, because one monkey don't stop no show. So y'all please just (laughs) don't mind the blips in the recording. I'm still trying to get my shit together as far as my microphone, and trying to make sure that y'all hear me loud and clear, as well as any guests that I bring on. So I want to thank y'all for tuning in. Let's get into it. Okay, y'all, so today I have my girl Coco joining me. My girl's come educated, and she has a background in behavioral mental health. And she's going to be listening to me tell y'all about this case. She's going to be answering any questions that I throw at her. And, I mean, we went to school together, y'all. So to have you on here, it's honestly a full circle moment and one for the fucking books. And, you know what, Coco, you got the floor. Go, go ahead. Tell, tell my listeners about you.
1: Yeah, so my name's Coco, or... Um, in the professional world, they just call me Courtney. Um, to, begin, to begin, I do want to thank you for having me on. It's really exciting. I'm really in a true crime. So to be able to do it with you is like just chef's kiss. I love Chef it. Chef's fucking kiss. <laughs> so like you said, I work. I've been in this field for probably about six years now. Um, my mm. undergraduate degree is in psychology and sociology. Um, right now, I am in a master's program to get my master's of social work um, with an emphasis on behavioral mental health. Um, Long term, I'm working to become a licensed social worker so I can provide therapy um, with an emphasis on our BIPOC community. Um, we do need more therapists. of We do. So that's why I'm really, really passionate about it. Um, I think that it's very underserved and underrepresented and the more is. people of color we have in this field, the more we can help heal this generational trauma and just cope with the systemic we endure on a day-to-day basis. So that's what I'm currently in school for. I have a little bit left to go, but I do really enjoy it. I love it. I love changing lives and it just it means so much to me um you can find me on tiktok it is the cbt baddie health tiktok we're addressing some day-to-day stuff some things i've experienced in my therapy field Mm -hmm. and we're just getting started so if you want to go follow me i would greatly appreciate it and i am so ready to dive in i can't wait to hear what you have for me Absolutely, because let me tell you it's gonna be a fucking doozy. So
0: I I mean I just want to touch on some shit. You are doing the fucking thing. You don't understand, you can't see me here. Like wig is lifted as fuck, but I'm here smiling <laughs> from ear to fucking ear because you're right. We do need more black people in these fucking fields. We do need more black bodies to talk to because we we understand each other at the end of the fucking day. And I'm I'm so fucking of excited course. like come on, like ugh. When black women, as you said earlier, chef's fucking kiss, hats off to you, Coco. And like, as y'all know, we're going to be talking about the DC sniper case. So as I said, this shit is a doozy. I might as well go ahead and insert in a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about abuse and grisly fucking death as in every other episode. So if this is not an episode for you, I completely understand if you want to skip. And it's crazy because I didn't even know about this case. I have a good friend of mine, his name is Bobby. And I'm gonna, I told him, if I gotta fucking kidnap you son, you're coming onto this episode. <laughs> Because he's the one that planted this shit in my mind. Like, we were just discussing about the DC snipers. Like, remember, like, I reached out to y'all and I asked y'all to be on. And, like, I would ask, like, okay, like, what cases interest you? And he told me the DC snipers. And he said something that was so interesting. I did not know that there were two niggas running around terrorizing DC in 2002. Like... You know how we yeah. always say, like, not our people. Like our black people would never. These men were nevering, like, never the fuck before. And so we're we're gonna we're gonna get into this because I don't I don't like I just when we were talking about it, I realized this has to be the case. So yeah,
1: their names.
0: I'm gonna name them for y'all. Their names are John Allen Muhammad. He was 41, and Lee Boyd Malvo, who was 17 at the time and wow. yeah this was in 2002 so we basically got a baby killer running around here and this grown-ass man and how old were you when this shit happened so
1: and that would have been like eight
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, so, okay. Yeah, I mean, we,
0: were, we were still living but we you remember um the 9-11 attacks right
1: yeah oh you should be of course
0: what where were you when that happened
1: I remember I was at school and mm-hmm. I was at a school in Illinois, um, the school I was low, like I was, I was located not too far from a former nuclear power plant. So I remember like oh. our school went on lockdown and they were freaking out because they were like, well, they could buy that power plant. And if we do, we're fucked. So I just remember yeah. getting sent home from school and like, I go home and my parents are just sobbing and watching and you know I'm like what the fuck is going on like right. okay I'm thinking I got a half day at school that's lit but I the swear. whole time the world was and it just like it didn't register in my mind like what really happened until like I was an adult and now when I talk to kids about it like these are things like kids like they're reading about it in history books and you and I lived through that and it at the time it was kind of like I don't know what's going on and it right
0: literally a part of fucking history because you're right like all i remember was we got sent the fuck home i got mcdonald's and my mom was extra nice that day that's what i remember <laughs> but like yeah like you're so right like um you teach kids now about this shit that we live through so imagine we have these attacks so in 2002 let me tell you no one was fucking safe i mean mm. men women children it did not matter who was the target and that's what made this case so terrifying because they didn't have a profile and 17 people were dead 10 were wounded and the police they didn't even have vests that could withstand the weapon that was used in these attacks and like there's just so much shit like i wish i could fit all of the information that i know into these episodes but i i simply can't so y'all if y'all didn't know this is going to be a part two so in this first part, I'm going to cover some of the murders that took place in D.C. And then give y'all some background on Muhammad and Malvo because this fucking rabbit hole. And I feel like I see that <laughs> every episode, how this case had been fucked up. But this shit, yeah. like So yeah, it's going to be two parts. And then in the second part, I'm going to cover the rest of the murders and cover how these fuckers got caught. Um, yeah. So, I mean, let's just get into it so we talked about how you know 2001 happened now we're in 2002 this was a wild time so the dc sniper attacks are also known as the beltway sniper attacks and are infamous for murders that took place in the district of columbia maryland and virginia but a lot of people don't know like did you know that there were several other murders that took place prior to october and this shit started in february
1: Mm, to be honest i can't recall much about the dc sniper to begin with
0: i fucking love this because you're gonna come down this rabbit hole i'm gonna take you out so prepare yourself because yeah these shootings were all over the place they were in washington georgia louisiana maryland and alabama i mean it was john allen muhammad and lee boyd malvo like, as I said before, no one was safe. It didn't matter, like, who you were. You could be doing your everyday tasks. I mean, people, like, and I'm a, I always say I'm going um, to post pictures, but there were people, like, at some point at gas stations, they had these tarps up to conceal people while they were pumping gas. Wow. I mean, niggas was crouched down, like, trying to get the gas in their car, uh-huh. trying to, be like, in and out, like, real quick. And it, it just didn't matter. You could have been leaving a grocery store. And there's one infamous pick, and it really just breaks my heart. Like, there's a woman, and the police have already gotten there. They've tried to secure the scene. And she's just sitting on a bench, slumped over with a bloody oh blanket of her. Oh, my like, God. Like, Miss Mamas was just sitting there minding her fucking business. So, yeah, I'm going to take y'all down this deep dive into the sniper rabbit hole, because... Honestly, I tried to mentally place myself on the West Coast during this time. And I I simply cannot imagine the fear. Mm Because as we discussed, 9-11 had just happened. And for the longest, the police had no idea who was responsible for these shootings. And the nation hadn't even healed from, you know, 2001. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the shootings that dubbed this case the Beltway sniper attacks and mm-hmm. then I'm going to give y'all a background on John and Lee. So are you ready?
1: Mm, of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I just want to point out October 2nd, 2002, it was a normal fucking day. And this was really the start of the panic in DC. So around 5:20 p.m., a shot was fired into a Michael's craft store in Aspen Hill. And no one was injured and, but no one knew the make of the car or no one could identify like who fired the shot to begin with. An hour later, a 55 year old named James D Martin, he was walking outside of a shoppers food warehouse in Wheaton when he was struck by a bullet. And I mean, the police and the EMS, they were there within 15 minutes. But they didn't know if it was like a robbery that had gone wrong or somebody had walked up to him and, you know, clapped this man like they did not know what was going on. But the shot from the records of the people who were around, they said it sounded like a cannon had gone Mm. off and it was similar to a fucking thunderclap. Can you imagine? No. uh,
1: Thinking about just the... The constant state of fear that people already were in post nine eleven and then Bull- adding in these external factors like that just prolonged state of stress on any human will really fuck with you.
0: It would really fuck with you. Like the moment I hear some bullshit, like we're out. Like like nine eleven just happened. Like we gotta fucking go. And I mean, there was surveillance of the shooting and this is how they determined that it was a long range shot. Like, this man was walking out, and he just hit the fucking ground, and he died almost immediately. So this shit happened in broad daylight and right next to a police station. Who the fuck is so bold? (laughs) Like, the audacity. The audacity. And I'm sorry if y'all hear me coughing here and there. I hate that for y'all, but I'm just getting over the flu. (laughs) (laughs) Forgive your girl. So- I want to point out that by all accounts, James Martin, he was a nice guy. He worked downtown, Silver Springs. He had one son. And this was his first time going to this store. Like, his sister described him as a wonderful brother and uncle. In an interview, she described that she basically got through the death and burial of her brother by just, she thought she was in this horrible fucking dream and just needed to
1: wake up. Is that dissociating? I mean, I think it would be a stress induced dissociation, Um, Mm -hmm. like to be in that state of stress. So it just kind of finds any means possible to check you out of reality, just to be able to cope and maintain the best of your abilities. Damn. And it's
0: like, I just feel so bad. Like, that's why I want to cover these, some of these cases first. So we can mm-hmm. humanize these victims, right? Yeah. So I want to also talk about October 3rd. Now this is when shit hit the fucking fan. So the first shooting, like mind you, the police are still trying to figure out what the fuck happened yesterday. We got somebody firing a shot into a Michael's craft store
1: <laughs> of all places.
0: Of all places where white folk inhabit. A- <laughs> <laughs> Heaven forbid the white folk. (laughs) They were scratching their heads trying to figure this shit out. So October 3rd, this is what they call the death day because the Mm -hmm. toll is fucking wild. So the first shooting involved 39-year-old James L. Sonny Buchanan Jr. He was mowing a lawn basically when he was struck. And at first there was so much confusion because bystanders, they, they could only see blood and they thought he had been injured by the lawnmower but to everyone's fucking horror the lawnmower had not malfunctioned and the blades were still intact this man had been shot and oh. he succumbed to his injuries <laughs> half a, like half an hour later 30 minutes later 54 year old prim kumar Walakar. he was filling his taxi cab with gas when he was gunned down now there was a pediatrician who was there she was. And in her interview, she talks about how she was pumping her gas and she looks over and she just thought it was weird how he was pumping his gas from underneath his car. And (laughs) so that kind of like stalled her for a couple seconds. Next thing you know, you hear that loud ass cannon again. And Mm -hmm. she was like, oh, fuck, that was a gunshot. And she sees him through the window of his car. And the last thing that Prem Kumar said was call 911 before
1: oh collapsing. Can I yeah, just say, though, could... like, can you imagine mm-hmm. Day, just minding your own fucking business and motherfuckers are just getting shot left and right when you least expect Hello. it? You're at the craft store. You're at the gas station. Like, that's wild to me.
0: Hello. Like, you're just pumping gas. This lady's kid was in the back fucking seat. Oh, my God. Was in the back seat. Like, you're just going to get gas, doing just mundane tasks that you would do every other day. And now you're looking over a man who has just been shot and he's choking on his vomit. You're waiting Mm -hmm. for the EMS to show up, 911. Like they, they, they all came pretty quickly to these scenes. So, but the police were there first before the ambulance and they're helping her out with him, excuse me, with him. And she notices that EMS has pulled up, but they haven't gotten out of their fucking trucks. And she says like, it, it just felt like forever. And uh-huh. I just want to point out, like, I don't know if y'all know, I don't think I've ever mentioned it, but I worked for a small period of time as a fire and EMS dispatcher. And one thing that I remember is that you do not send EMS to a scene that is not secure. They had to wait until that scene was secure so they can get out and help. But he eventually ended up succumbing to his injuries as well. So this is like the first time, literally the first of many press conferences were held shortly after this. But the death toll is not fucking done because 34-year-old Sarah Ramos was shot as she sat literally on a bench. She was in front of some sort of restaurant and the shot literally went through her and through the glass into the restaurant. And luckily no one was hit, but she, she literally died right there. And then not too long after 35 year old Lori Lewis Rivera was gunned down while she vacuumed her fucking car. Wow. And like, I I gotta point out some shit that literally broke my fucking heart. I mean, mind-altering moment was listening to Nelson Rivera remember the day she died. And this is her husband. And I mean, all of these stories are heartbreaking. But I want to point out that he met this lady in a church. He was, he's, he was from Honduras, didn't speak a lick of English. He fell in love with her the moment he saw her. And he asked his brother to ask Lori out on a date for him. And they're just sitting at this date. Like, he don't know English. So, like, just imagine <laughs> fucking... Like, you love someone so much, you don't need fucking English to speak. Right. Oh. Like, what is that? Where are they at? Like, oh, where are men like that? <laughs> okay, because oh. they're not in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or Texas. Oh, but I- <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> I digress, but... like, he knew he loved this woman. So they keep dating and eventually they get married. Of course, he he ends up learning how to speak English and then they have a daughter. So he had to tell his daughter that mommy had gone up to heaven and that now she was watching over us. His daughter did not fucking understand and would continue to ask him, when is mommy taking me to the pool? Because he remembered Lori for how much of a bomb-ass fucking mom she was. And she would always take her baby swimming.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, like, it's just so important to humanize these people. Because, oh, yeah, mind you, this isn't the last shooting of the day. Seven year old <laughs> Pascal Charlotte was shot shortly after Lori. Like... We got to humanize these people because they were parents, sons, daughters, brothers and sisters, and they lost their lives at the hands of senseless fucking evil. So when I tell you about Boyd Malvo, like, yes, we weep for the child, but we understand two things can be fucking true. You can have yeah. a shitty ass upbringing, but you're not absolved from being a shitty ass adult. We just have the facts that un- help us understand how he was created. Like, yeah, so it was just important that we add those details before we get into the background. And I think you'll be, you'll, it'll be interesting telling you about Lee, but I'm going to start off with John. So John Allen Muhammad, he was born John Allen Williams on December 31st, 1960 to Ernest and Murtis Williams. Now there are other accounts that um, say that she had a different name, but Murtis was just um, what I found primarily. So he was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, to this middle class family. And John's father wasn't really in the picture, but life was relatively good. And this was until Myrtle was diagnosed with breast cancer. So she leaves New Orleans with her son and her other children, and they moved to Baton Rouge to live with her father and other family members. Myrtle ends up passing away uh, when John was between the ages of three and four. But he still had his maternal grandparent and aunts to basically keep an eye on him. Now, even though he suffered losing his mother, he, like, I'm telling you, Coco, like, reading his background, there's no indication of how he grew up to be just a fucking shit stain. So, like, by all (laughs) accounts, he grew up in a warm and nurturing neighborhood. Like, all the families and kids knew each other. John's aunts, they would make homemade ice cream on the back porch and all the kids would come over. And I even read some accounts like from a woman named Carolyn Matthews who grew up next door. She said, and I quote, I remember a nice little boy who liked to play with kids in the neighborhood. All the adults took part in raising the neighborhood children. If my mom saw him doing something, he was corrected. We went from one house to the next, and when it got dark, you could hear the mothers calling the children in from one end of the street to the other. You know, like, I don't know how your childhood was, but that's how mine was. Like, yeah, you can go outside and play, but when them street lights come on, bring your ass back home. But, it, like, just, they were so confused, because according to them, there isn't anything that happened in his youth that could explain what the fuck he ends up doing. So, and I just want to point out, like, he was always easy to watch, and no one could recall him ever getting into trouble. Now, John was raised in a stern household. Um, This was run by Guy Holiday, who was his grandfather, but he was quickly taken under the wing of his T.T. Annie Jackson, and his other T.T. Addie Washington pitched in to help raise him. So his cousins all remember him from being spoiled, John loved pancakes, tennis, and sharp clothes. He attended church every Sunday with his family and sang in the children's choir at King David Baptist Church. All through high school, John played on the Scotlandville High School's tennis team, and he was was pretty damn good. And prior to graduating, he played in a tournament at Louisiana State University, and then he went on to
1: join the Louisiana Army National Guard from like the, just from like a quick glance, he has a lot of protective factors in play, things that would Mm -hmm. um, lead to better outcomes. He had a family that cared for him. He was involved in activities. Like um, he hung out with neighborhood kids. Like those are things that, you know, as a mental health professional, you look when you kind of determine like just long term, like the long-term trajectory of like their well being and where they'll end up at. Mm -hmm. So where would
0: you think John would have ended up
1: at? Like just listening to the what I'm telling you. Well, it's kind of hard to say because think a biological parent like that is an adverse childhood experience, and Mm -hmm. you know you have to take into consideration like was he living in poverty, like did they have access to food, what was the education system like? So you have to take those into consideration too. But based off of what you've already said, it seems like the prognosis would be really good.
0: Yeah, I was about to say John ass was fed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like fuck him I'm so sorry like oh uh, like like <laughs> it just sounds like he was just raised in like the ideal black ho- um black household minus you know having his mother like yeah that that took a probably a traumatizing turn considering the fact that his dad wasn't around but I John maybe I uh, yeah 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 <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah. No, I'm so sorry, but I'm gonna let y'all know now. John was executed by lethal injection. Put that oh. nigga under the jail. Fuck him. Oh,
1: <laughs> oh. <fuck. laughs> yeah.
0: mm-hmm. So I'm say
1: spoiler alert. <laughs>
0: excuse me. Yes, heavy spoiler alert. So, so John had this little boo thing. Her name was Mildred Green. Now he met her in the fall of 1983. He was 22 and she was 23 and a cheerleader and lived with her mother everyone now they just thought they was gonna be together forever like they was on some soul tie shit and it was just so interesting reading his ex-wife's account of him because another spoiler alert him and Mildred Green are fucking divorced so <laughs> yeah Mildred Mildred she said that everyone loved John he was jovial funny and that guy in that quote And John kind of slid on Mildred real smooth. I mean, like on some real shit, like he asked her like, baby, what you looking for? And she told him everything she was looking for in a man. And he was like, oh, that's me. Like John was romantic and said all the right things. But I wanna point out that this was Mildred's first relationship and she had no male figure in her life who could show her how a man should act. So, you know, like, you you got this man who's sliding up on you real smooth and telling you all the right things. Like, she loved her some John. And everything was going good until her homegirl spilled some tea that John was actually married to a woman named Carol Kegler and had a son named (laughs) Lindbergh.
1: Fuck. You (laughs) niggas ain't shit. No,
0: period. (laughs) lord forgive me but i swear you just sound like the typical racy negro don't it Uh oh Uh -oh. (laughs) let me stop let me stop stop. i'm giving away too much so excuse me y'all so yeah they had a son named Lindbergh Williams now at this point Mildred was like okay i gotta leave this man alone gotta leave him alone and she did till one day john reaches out to her and mind you, this is how I've read it in so many different accounts. He flat out told Mildred that he had a problem. The problem was he couldn't read. John Allen was illiterate.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, you you mean tell me you can't read, but you 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 do it be dirty, like I I just don't know, pick a struggle. Right. But, you
1: worried about the wrong shit. <laughs>
0: you worried about the wrong shit, my boy. So <laughs> <laughs> now during this time he was still a part of the National Guard. But probably unbeknownst to Mildred, he had gotten into some trouble. Once for failing to report to duty, and the other time was for hitting another officer. But, yeah, Mildred, she she still loved her some John. She taught him how to read so he could go back to the military and pass the required tests. And John passed and left for Fort Lewis in 1985, leaving Carol and Lindbergh, who was three at the time, at home. And I, I want to point something out. So, John and Carol are still together. And he now has Mildred on the side teaching him the ABCs and shit. And he ends up writing to Mildred saying he would do whatever it took to make it work with her. Mildred wanted to build a life with him. So, John divorced Carol and married Mildred a few months later. Wow. No, I also want to point something out. I am in no way smearing Mildred about what she decided to do. And because we never know what we're going to do until we're in that situation. And Mildred is honestly the biggest fucking victim in this case outside of the people who were killed. Because when I tell you how the system fucking failed her, you are going to be just shell shocked. Basically said, if you needed anything, you could go to John. But he wasn't someone who really showed his emotions. So that made it difficult for people to read him and, and understand what was going on with him. She believed that he had always been the type to blow up in explosive anger, but he really could conceal it well, and that's fucking terrifying. Like, what is that?
1: It's a be per- a manipulative asshole.
0: A. That's what I think. Cause um Yeah, she said when he, so John goes to Saudi, because mind you, he, this man now can read, he's passed his test, and he goes to Saudi, and he went to go, because he had received orders to go to Desert Storm for the war that was in Saudi Arabia, and she said that this only intensified this man's fucking temper, but let me tell you some tea, so he returns three months later because he had received an injury, this is what he was telling Mildred, He had received this injury and that's why he was being sent home. But then other stories started to come forward. John had been accused of trying to kill other fucking soldiers. So this is when, he's a sergeant at this time. Another soldier challenged him and he did this in front of other people and this humiliated the fuck out of him. So let me tell you how this was almost fatal for this other soldier. So the man who had challenged him he was in charge of explosives. And that very same night, John snuck into this man's area, stole a grenade, activated it, and then threw it into this man's sleeping bag. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't understand. Like, we we have figured out a way to communicate over this podcast. And I'm literally watching Coco try to process this information, <laughs> threw it in this man's sleeping bag, and got the fuck out of Dodge.
1: Oh, my God. So <laughs> like, I I give I give points for um creativity. What the fuck is that? What
0: is that? No one has ever made me that mad. Let me tell you.
1: <laughs> you let know, me throw a grenade in your sleeping.
0: Desert storm. It's my fucking self, and no one has ever made me that mad. And hmm. this, <laughs> this grenade, it went off and it injured the soldier. So. Immediately, John is looked at as the culprit, and he was accused of trying to get back at the soldier who had basically humiliated him. So they hogtied John, and they placed him in a dungeon and left his ass there. So we don't know how long he was left in the dungeon. We don't know everything that happened, you know, that night. But Mildred said that when John came back from the service, he was not the same person. And I also want to point out that John did receive an injury. It's not clear what injury he received, but it also had chemical exposure. Okay. How? And I've been trying to grapple. Like when I was first reading this case, I was like, bingo. Like he got fucked up in Saudi Arabia. Right. So maybe that can explain, you know, how he was triggered after,
1: but still i mean and it's very it's very back. likely yeah. that um in the service in saudi arabia could have contributed to the outcomes that occurred later on but like we kind of said before with like his childhood like <laughs> he also had some good things going for him too so obviously we can't predict the outcome of traumatic stress disorder in our soldiers that return from overseas but it could have played a part into and influenced some of his later processes.
0: And yeah, and I'm definitely going to get into the PTSD. And so I'll have questions for you in a second. So (laughs) I'm gonna point out, so the situation with the grenade, it was investigated, but John had his own side. He said, that he basically had put in a complaint against these officers because they were white officers and they were being racist towards him and because he outed them they concocted this story about the grenade to get him into trouble he said that he was hogtied and they humiliated him and let me point out that they're sitting in this fucking meeting with john's commander it's john mildred and his commander and the commander He basically says, Well, John, we have already investigated these claims, but when we tried to ask you questions, you refused to answer us. I want to point out that he looked John in his fucking face in front of Mildred and said, Why didn't you answer our questions, John? John got the fuck up and basically (laughs) said, (laughs) Yeah, this one got the fuck up. He basically said, Permission to be released. The commander said, Permission granted. And John walked the fuck out. They never really talked about it again. He never talked about it with Mildred. The military didn't keep records. And so now we just have basically just the different working parts of this situation. But you would think that someone throwing an active fucking grenade in someone's
1: sleeping bag would be fucking investigating. Well, especially like why if you ask for permission to leave, you should be your ass fucking down like clearly they need to investigate this man for a purpose and they literally let him walk out the door
0: they let this man walk out the door and then he was released back to base and he was examined and it was determined that he was suffering from ptsd i'm
1: gonna tell you
0: what i found and you you know correct me and do your thing but we have to look at the time we were in so PTSD was added to the Manual of Mental Disorders in 1980, and from what I read, it was extremely controversial at the time. And PTSD can occur after a traumatic experience, and so you get flashbacks along with fear, and the person who is suffering from the disorder can become depressed and detached and lose their trust in others. And there wasn't much being done at the time for the disorder because it wasn't really understood. Can you agree with that?
1: I would say that's pretty accurate. I mean, there's definitely a lot of controversy with even having PTSD considered a disorder, stigmatizing in itself to just add disorder into something that's a natural response to traumatic events. But Mm. otherwise, you know, anxiety, depression, those are often co-occurring disorders with PTSD. Um, Individuals with PTSD, they'll have reoccurring effects, nightmares, um, a lot of agitation um mm-hmm. a lot of like relationship dynamic changing so it's a really tricky disorder to kind of navigate even as a professional that's like a mixture for a disaster for a fucking disaster and that's
0: exactly where we're headed because when he got home by this time they had had their first child together named john jr and john's back home now and he put all of his focus on his son But Mildred noticed his behavior had taken a turn for the fucking worst, and he began breaking plates and other types of dishes, leaving three of everything. And Mildred asked him, like, John, what the fuck are you doing? Like, why are you breaking shit? And he told her, we don't need any of that. No one else is coming over. And his behavior Mm. just got darker and darker. And he hadn't really abused Mildred, but he did definitely started to to the point of where he began to scare her and in one interview Mildred mentioned that John's gaze and how his voice got dark like the way she described it I would describe it shark eyes with a fucking narcissist like and (laughs) how he would scare her he scared this lady so bad that she locked herself in a bathroom for an entire day
1: that's just very mentally abusive towards Mildred
0: very fucking mentally abusive. And then soon we're gonna get into how he threatened to kill this woman and she still never got the help that she fucking needed. Right, you're just like, huh? Like, it's not one thing in in your face. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me y'all, excuse me. So now I wanna point out, so at some point Mildred and John, they get their own business. John, he started to use his skills that he learned in the military and he was working on vehicles. So Mildred would take the calls for service and then dispatch John to the client's house. This is where infidelity begins to happen with some of the clients. And Mildred now has a best friend who's working with them and her, she's in charge of the books. Her name is Issa Nichols. And she was 10 toes down with the fact that John was not acting fucking right. Like she really stood beside Mildred was giving her advice and mind you his behavior is really scaring her and when i say her i mean mildred and it was starting to take a toll on her mental health and the business began to suffer because john wasn't showing up to appointments and was gone for sometimes days at a time now the tipping point came when a client called mildred and asked like hey i need to speak to the boss and mildred asked her okay like what's wrong she wanted to file a complaint against John because he made sexual advances towards her in lieu of payment for services that he did on her fucking vehicle. And Mildred was basically done at this point. Eventually, they didn't have enough money to pay Isa for her services. And she basically tells John that she's ready to get a divorce. He's removed from the family home. And this is when shit gets real sinister. So Mildred would notice that he would come into the house at night And stand over her and at this point she was a firm believer that if john had the fucking chance he was gonna kill her and no one was fucking listening so like what is that because there are several accounts like she would hear the door unlock john would walk in she would hear him just breathing over her as she slept and he would pace back and forth in the room and then one night that he woke up one of their kids And John was just basically like, the baby's up, and gave the kids to Mildred, and then walked the fuck out. And after this shit, she changed the locks.
1: What is this behavior? I mean, it's clear that he's having some stalking behaviors, and it's unfortunate not being listened to and heard, but unfortunately, it's a common occurrence with stalking and domestic violence and healthy relationships that oftentimes women go unheard and just kind of toss the side
0: literally toss the fucking side like a sack of potatoes like but would you think so we've already talked about his upbringing we talked about his time in the military and now he's acting this way so do you think that this is like i don't know like the isolation the breaking the plates the death stares the the deep voice that he he gets when he gets all serious there and fucking, he just gives me an ick.
1: He gives me an ick. I lick. feel like we can, we can see where this is going. It's not going down a good route. And clearly this dude needs some type, of, whether it's a therapeutic inf- intervention, he needs to be put into inpatient or something cause he's not stable. He's he stay- unsafe be- behaviors and he's mm-hmm. putting people's lives at risk at this point both Mildred and the children so is he a
0: fucking asshole or do you think that some type of treatment could have stopped
1: this from progressing and coming to a head <laughs> uh I think he would need some very intensive treatment <laughs> most likely inpatient <laughs> or residential to begin with
0: <laughs> I guess we can say two things can be fucking true he needed help and he was yeah. a fucking
1: dean i mean and sometimes you don't know unless you try i mean who's i mean sometimes (laughs) and they still do the fuck shit anyways but sometimes you get a glimmer of hope and you can run on that and it gets somewhere but like just it's not it's kind of just it's a toxic mixture and it's you can tell it it's gonna blow up it's gonna go in a really south direction and (laughs) it (coughs) comes excuse me so i
0: mean it definitely goes south, and I feel like I keep saying this, but it's it's very fucking true. So, John ends up taking their three kids in what was supposed to be a normal visit. So, during this time, Mildred had filed a restraining order against him. And let me point out that once officials looked into his history, she was granted a lifetime fucking restraining order. But they still allowed him to take the kids because... Legally, he he was still the parent, and there was no custody agreement at this time. Now, John fails to return the children back to Mildred, and then she was refused a criminal investigation. John took those fucking kids. This man leaves the country. During this time, she was hospitalized. Mildred hadn't been eating, and she just did not know where her babies were because John had just taken them and just disappeared like on a day that was supposed to be like a normal day. Okay. Yeah. Kids go have fun with your dad. She didn't see her kids for 18 months. This toll it put her in the hospital. And I want, and I'm telling y'all all of this because this is all a working part that led to these fucking shootings. So let me, let me point this out. So Mildred is in the hospital. She's hooked up to a bunch of shit. Issa, her friend that I mentioned earlier who used to help with the business. She's there and Issa receives a call from Mildred's mother who said, John has called me and told me that he is on his way to kill Mildred. This is the shit that Mildred was going through. And John was just so out in the open and Mildred was so scared because John was threatening like, I'm gonna put a bullet in your head and no one is ever gonna find your body. This is the shit that he was putting Mildred through. And of course she lost her shit. I mean, IV's popping out of her arms. She's losing her literal shit. And John is in fucking Antigua. This nigga is crazy. And I'm going to point out that this is actually when he meets Lee Boyd Malvo. A lot of people think that Lee is John's son. He is not. He met him in Jamaica. So now we're about to get into Lee Boyd Malvo. So Lee Boyd Malvo was born in Kingston in February 18th, 1985 to Leslie Malvo and Una James. So Leslie was, he was a 37-year-old construction worker and Una was a 21-year-old seamstress. We have a 37-year-old 30- <laughs> <have> 30- <laughs> okay. man and a 21-year-old seamstress. But from what I've read, this shit is normal in Jamaica. So, okay. I want to point out that Lee did not have a good upbringing and in every account about his childhood that I have read including from Lee's own mouth his mother beat him regularly and Leslie, his father was not faithful to Una and was gone for long periods of time which often left Lee fucking heartbroken to the point of where sometimes this baby, he would be wandering around the streets crying for his father until Una would find him and basically beat the shit out of him. Oh, that's (laughs) <laughs> and sad. So these beatings started around the age of five and only got worse, often leaving him bloody. And Lee loved his father because his father was the one to really humanize him to Una. Like there's one situation, talking off the, off the notes here, but there's one situation that I remember um, reading about where Lee remembers he broke one of Una's knickknacks or something important to her while she was at work. And he basically waited for her to just come home and beat him because oh. he, he knew what was coming. Yeah. And of course, Una got off of work and she started to beat him. But Leslie was the one to step in and say, this is something you can replace. And mm-hmm. he was now pointing to uh, Lee and he's like, you can't replace him. So right. Lee always remembered his father as just someone who always stuck up to him. But He lost whatever protection he had when Una left Leslie in the spring of 1990. And this was due to her suspicions of Leslie having an affair. When Una left, uh, Leslie, he didn't come looking for them. He didn't really care. I think one time uh, Lee saw his father like walking in the street and he was just indifferent towards him. Like he he really Hmm. didn't care for them, which is really fucking sad. And... They ended up moving to a small town named Endeavor, where um, Una would leave Lee with family and friends. And I mean, for weeks at a time. And she would go work odd jobs in nearby towns where she really never even made enough to support them. And I wanna point out that this was the struggle with many Jamaican mothers who are trying to raise their children alone. And there's actually a term, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called barrel Children's Syndrome. And this refers to children whose parents have migrated and they send them a barrel. And this is basically material resources, but it's in place of emotional support or direct care. But whenever Una did come back to Lee, the beatings intensified. She would beat him relentlessly, throw shoes at him, pull his hair. And Lee even said that he responded to this abuse by trying to put himself in a trance so the punishments wouldn't hurt as much. And that's yeah. just so fucking woof.
1: So like sometimes people, for besides fight or flight, you know, we have freeze, but there's also a fourth one called fawn. And when Is you that? fawn, that's when you basically just put yourself in a trance to make it hurt less. You know that if you fight back, it's going to be worse. You know you can't flee because it's your home. If you freeze, you still have to endure it. So if you fawn and you kind of like, almost like suck up to the person who is abusing you, it's a bit easier, you know, if you just kind of check out and just deal with it.
0: That's fucking horrifying. That's horrifying. I mean, fuck you, Una. Like, already, like, I've done, I mean, I've read over this like countless times, but Lee was fucking made.
1: It, exactly, and it's like children who ex- are products of homes who display criminal behavior, substance use, depression, anxiety, PTSD, borderline personality disorder—all these things emerging in adulthood because of childhood experiences. And it just—it never ceases to amaze me that parents and people do this to vulnerable as children, children who can't fucking defend themselves. Your own fucking on your own seed exactly to me and it just it's so hard for me to have feel any empathy towards child abusers and I know being in the therapeutic main neutral but it's like it's just hard for me to grasp and like understand like how people can really do this to their children and not think about wow this might really fuck my kid up but no hold on let me just punch him in the face again like it don't make no fucking sense
0: right Like, what the fuck is that, Una? And, like, I don't know. I've tried to, like, steer clear from, like, I I understand, like, just reading the plight of mothers in Jamaica, you know, trying to make a dollar, like, doing whatever they can, trying to go get better, but she wasn't really sending shit back, and the shit, like, what she did make, she would spend it on liquor, from what I've read, Mm -hmm. and... Eventually, they moved uh, from Endeavor to Antigua and they were living in a shack. They didn't have electricity, they didn't have running water. And Una began to disappear for months at a time instead of weeks. And each time she was coming back and, you know, just beating the shit out of him. And these absences got long, so long until one time Lee was 12 years old and was left alone for eight
1: months. She didn't communicate with Lee. like what the fuck like why would she bother coming back at that point what's like is, he's probably better off without her to be honest
0: he probably was and another thing that i'm going to say off the off the notes here for at one point in time i believe that lee was living with one of his teachers during this time mm-hmm. like he she didn't abuse him he he at, like before being with this teacher, he was waking up to morning beatings. Right. And instead, he was waking up to good morning. Stop. And life was, I know, life was getting good. And then Una came fucking back and took, basically took Lee from this space of comfort that he was yeah. in. And so, and even just like before being with that teacher, she left this baby to Basically he was in the streets begging and scavenging for scraps of metal and trying to salvage electronics so he can resell them on the streets. There's one situation where he literally saw a man get shot and robbed. And then like the men across the street, like they wave the pistol and tell him to get the fuck on. And he's just like, Okay. Like he's literally <laughs> being murdered while being abused. And then his mother comes and takes him from this sweet lady who is just caring for him. And so Now, he's around the time of 13. It's around, yeah, around the time he's the age of 13. He tries to hang himself in a backyard. And he literally is, like, waiting until his mother is about to see him kill himself to try and get something out of this fucking woman. And luckily, at the last second, he ends up being saved from this. But his mother was indifferent to the fucking situation. And if anything, like, treated him worse after that.
1: And it's sad that a child goes to that extent to get their parents' attention or love or any type of feeling from a parent that he risked taking his own life. And even if he, I mean, who's to say that if he was successful and tried to do it, that she would have even helped him? She wasn't. She just
0: stood there looking fucking stuck on stupid. Like, if my son was about to fucking hang himself, ain't no fucking way that I'm going to act indifferent or cold to the situation. Maybe we're gonna figure this shit out. What What am yeah. I doing? What has led us here? What can we do? Because at 13 years old, like a 13 year old, like that literally, to me, that just shows how close he was to so much darkness. And yeah.
1: It. Cause I yeah. was gonna like a genuine for real suicide attempt considering his upbringing it's the signs are all there. Like you'll find that in just also with children who have experienced abuse, the suicidality rates go up. And it's like, honestly, I couldn't blame him during the circumstances of his life and any stability that he did have kept getting ripped away from him because I would assume that if he was able to stay with the teacher, like these behaviors probably wouldn't have occurred.
0: Like he was just getting a hold of the fucking good life and Una fucking comes, snatches him away from it, and just treated him just so cold. Like it, it's heartbreaking. Like, again, we weep for the child, but I mean, still can't really be mm-hmm. resolved for what he does later. Um, right. But now we have kind of like an understanding. So let's get into how he comes across John. So. Una's basically selling cold drinks outside of a bus station when a friend recommends that she see John Allen Muhammad about obtaining fake documents so she could get into the States. So this Jamaican woman, like it is their fucking goal to get into the States. So she now has a chance. And now at this point, Muhammad had recently moved to Antigua with his three children that he had with Mildred and Una goes to Muhammad and they actually end up having some sort of relationship. When Lee first laid eyes on Muhammad, he basically saw how nice he was dressed and how well he was living and how he treated his children. The next time he saw Muhammad, he was suffering from rheumatic fever, and he was alone because his mother had made passage to the states and left him behind. <laughs>
1: Mouth fucking drop. What? <laughs> she said, dropped. "Fuck them kids," and I'm a do it. I'm a head on yes. out.
0: Like. Hips, hip I dip you dip we dip she was fucking gone and so I had to look up what rheumatic fever is because mind you Lee was very sick and he was in this shack no lights no running water
1: and oh basically
0: God. rheumatic fever is basically an attack on the immune system and it's an inflammatory condition it can inflame um the heart the joints the brain and skin making everything swell and it's a sign of a bacterial infection So Muhammad was like an angel who swooped in to save him and John brought him to the doctor, got him some medicine. He nursed Lee back to full fucking health and basically listened to Lee's story. And Lee noticed that he was the only person who listened to him and he began to trust him. But we can start to see how John began to groom him. And I mean, (laughs) sinking deep as fuck. And Lee basically asked to move in with John and that's what he ends up doing. So, Una is in Florida. Malvo is left behind with Muhammad. And Leah is taught about the nation of Islam and the uh, oppression of Black people and began to adopt Muhammad's American accent, accent. And he also started to call him father. And they just began to bond, like over lifting weights and playing basketball. In 2001, Muhammad and Malvo had snuck into Miami, where they joined Una for a brief <laughs> period of
1: time. Why do we keep going after this bitch? Listen. Let her be gone. She don't give a fuck. But you're gonna see
0: how it kind of gets fucked up because... So they sneak back into Miami. They're joined with Una for this small period of time. But soon they left Florida and unbeknownst to Malvo, he was being isolated by... um, He was being isolated from Una by John. So later Hmm. that year... Malvin and Una are fucking arrested and this is because Una had been looking for her son and John had managed to keep him from her until ultimately she found him and confronted him. Una calls the police to make a report like, hey, this nigga doesn't have my son for far too fucking long. Like he has my son. He, he won't give him back. And the police, they're like, are y'all legal? Right. <laughs> boom now una and um and lee malvo have been arrested but what ends up happening is right before they are to be deported back to jamaica malvo escapes and runs back to john and john enrolls him in the high school and now this is where they start to basically act like father and son and muhammad had malvo steal a 223 caliber bushmaster ar-15 rifle and this is when John begins to make Lee start his training. I'm seeing you look at me crazy. But Wait,
1: but, but <laughs> where the fuck is a kid going to steal a rifle from? That's what I want to know. A gun store? Is it that easy? I I guess in 2001 it, it was pretty easy. <laughs> I mean, true. <laughs> Time was a little bit different. And, you know, and they're in Florida, right?
0: Um, They had moved from Florida. Don't ask me where they went because I couldn't find it. <laughs>
1: But they're in Florida, I know Florida motherfuckers be crazy. So I was about to say, wild, I mean, but I'm just like amazed that he managed to steal a rifle. Like, but either way, and it's just, it's crazy too that Una, she wants to get a fuck and when she don't, that's the, I'm still okay. stuck on that. I'm like, still
0: stuck on that because she was like, "This nigga got my son. Now, boom, both of y'all are arrested and are in customs. Like, come on.
1: Right. You should have just let the shit be. Should've now you both got yourselves be. caught up. Like, what?
0: But yeah, Malvo ends up escaping, and he runs right back to John because this is the man he can trust. But now this is where we start to see how Muhammad unraveled this boy mentally. He totally out the gate. Everything you have been taught from your religion to your morals, your education, you've basically been brainwashed. John then proceeds to mix his views in with the lessons from the nation of Islam. And Lee even said from his own mouth that he really didn't know it at the time, but John had began to twist everything. And let me tell you about this training. He forced Lee to do leopard crawls across forest floors and callous And I had to look this shit up, like, what the fuck is calisthenics? (laughs) And I guess it's a form of strength training that you your body and gravity to help strengthen your muscles and improve your coordination, endurance, and mobility. And not only was Lee being forced into this rigorous training schedule, he was reading about revolution, uh, revolutionary literature, target practice, and military theory, Every night before bed, he had to memorize passages from Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And outside of reading about the target practice, he was physically practicing with the Bushmaster he stole. And I added this shit in my notes. (laughs) I don't know. I'm sorry y'all but I don't know I don't know if y'all remember like Harriet Tubman parkour but that, that that's the shit that came to mind. Like he had this nigga out here doing parkour parkour. Like what is this?
1: He's getting he's getting that nigga TTG. He trained to go.
0: Trained to go at any fucking moment. He was turning this boy into a literal killing machine. And at night Lee would fall asleep listening to tapes that had subliminal, subliminal messages and suggestions that there was a war between blacks and whites. Muhammad never abused Malvo, not like how Una did, but, and I think that this was abuse in other ways. So he would tie Lee up for hours in the foothills of Mount Baker, where Lee would go without food, water, or sleep until Muhammad came back to free him. and. Another thing that was so wild to me was Malvo was forced to watch The Matrix over a hundred fucking times over the course of this shit. And this was to, and I quote, prepare his mind for what was going to lie ahead. Malvo identified with Neo and Muhammad was his Morpheus, who was his father figure sent to show Lee that he was meant to lead a revolutionary or lead a revolution against an evil government that had oppressed his peoples to where they didn't even know that they were oppressed. The goal I mean, was massive
1: societal change. I mean that last little bit no, he's not wrong. That last are, little bit. I mean I, I mean we are so oppressed that we don't realize how oppressed we are. And like, like that is very true. Like I'm it's hard. Fuck, dude. But like, there's these little glimmers of shit where, he's like, the nigga was wasn't wrong. Like, there's some shit. But if, if
0: he had a kept it at that, <laughs> right? While also, not making this nigga do parkour in the middle of the fucking night in the <laughs> foothills of Mount Mount Manassas. Where the fuck did I say? Where <laughs> they were? Like, if it was just that, and you were teaching from a educational standpoint right. about race and oppression, that yeah. is definitely. But sending this nigga out into the world to say, shoot every white person that you see?
1: <laughs> yeah, no. Sir um, John. Not, not going to work game. out well for you. Fuck That's heck. not
0: going to work out well for you. That is not the plan. That is not the goal. So let me just make it known to all my listeners, we don't agree with this.
1: But Oh yeah, no. We
0: <laughs> it, yeah, we have to make that shit known. We don't agree with the lessons that were taught here. But if we had kept it with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and <laughs> And just history, like a little history lesson, like teach them about Emmett Till. Don't exactly don't this nigga to a pole and leave him for like three days, though no water. Like I just, oh. so I just want to point out. So let's talk about Mildred again and how she got her kids back. So as we know, John booked it to Antigua, but never really stopped taunting her. Like, this nigga was calling Mildred, and he would be like, you want your kids back? And she's like, John, like, you know what I do. Like, you're my fucking kids. And he'd be like, well, take me back. And we would just hang up the fucking phone. Like, he was a monster to Mildred. And her best friend, Issa, never left her side. Like, Issa really tried to encourage Mildred to take care of herself. And she understood that Mildred was literally falling apart and wanted to basically stress the importance of keeping herself 100%. Because when these kids came back, would Mildred even be alive? Like that's where this shit was headed. Like Mildred was literally dying under the stress of not talking to her kids. And no one knew where John was um, during this time. I mean, he was kind of living his life before coming back to the States. And he had made a business from creating fake documents that gave Jamaican safe passage to the States. So, at one point, John comes to the States, leaving Malville behind to watch his three fucking kids. <laughs> like, "Oh, like, this child, this baby, you have left him to watch your children." But at this point, like, John uh, Lee kind of trusts John. And so at during this time, Lee lost thousands of dollars of John's money because his house got fucking raided. So by the time that they both officially come back to the States, they were fucking destitute. And and then the police finally end up locating John and their and their three kids that he had with Mildred. And during this time, Mildred was doing the background work. Like she had been granted a full divorce and full custody of the kids. She had filed for a writ of habeas corpus, meaning wherever these babies were fucking found, they were to be picked up and sent straight to her. And just to get on like the law side of this, this is a legal tool that a person can use to enforce a superior right of possession to a child. And mm, looking at the abuse that Mildred had suffered at John's hand, and he took these kids for almost two years from their mom, like they were, the the courts were not playing with John. So, so the problem previously was that they just didn't know where John was. And John was eventually caught because as I mentioned earlier, like his money was gone. He's with Lee and his other three kids in the States. He had moved to Washington. This nigga tried to register these kids under welfare, but was suspected of welfare fucking fraud. And so, bingo. like That is when they fucking get John. But Mildred is notified that they have found her kids, but they are bordering fucking Canada. I know I put Mexico in my notes, but that's fucking wrong. They were bordering (laughs) Canada. And they had said, like, hey, if John gets over the border with these kids, there's nothing we can do about it. And you could potentially lose these kids for fucking forever. But they end up catching up to him. And there's an immediate custody hearing where Mildred was granted sole custody of their kids. And this is where shit hits the fucking fan. So fucking tea. So Issa goes to, with Mildred to the courthouse, basically to support her. And I want to point out that John scared Mildred so fucking bad. Like she laid eyes on this man and started fucking screaming. Like this lady was terrified and Issa had to keep her calm and tell her to remember to breathe. She was holding her hand and she got to see her kids. So they had that union and the kids were given to Mildred and John just couldn't understand why his kids were being taken from him. Like, I wish I could insert the clips, but you can hear him ask so why are my kids being taken from me? Like, is it because I didn't have the the documents? Like, so I'll never see my kids again. Like he couldn't understand. But the judge had made a note that Mildred hadn't seen these babies for 18 months. Hence why the writ of habeas corpus was filed. And the judge had explained to him that the order of default, that there was an order of default because he never responded to the divorce summons and the children and she can have physical possession of the children, and John just couldn't understand the previous court orders or how his absence and him ignoring Mildred led to the loss of his kids. So <laughs> <laughs> he just he wasn't getting it, he wasn't getting it, it wasn't setting in. And during this particular court hearing, he finds out that he is fully divorced from Mildred one hook out, and now he has lost his kids, both hooks out. And this is kind of when he loses his shit. So there's a point where they're in the hallway. It's Mildred, Issa, the kids. We got... Like the sheriffs and the attorneys are all in the hallway. And John walks out of the courtroom. Mildred lays eyes on John and takes the fuck off. And they said like in the interview, like shoes was fucking flying wig in the fucking breeze this lady was so (laughs) terrified oh that's so sad it's so sad because she knew like she even said like do y'all know how quick this man is and so all Issa says in her interview like she saw mildred take the fuck off and then she sees john take the fuck off after her in front of the attorneys in front of the sheriffs that were fucking there takes off after her puts his hand on the on the um door to the fucking courtroom and basically was like gotcha, in front of everybody,
1: so he ain't got shit. This nigga don't care. Got,
0: basically, this man said, "Gotcha, bitch!" Like now's the fucking time. But luckily, like they were able to get away. But we see all through this how the police fucking failed Mildred. They didn't listen to her when she first said that this nigga was trying to pull her muffin cap back blue. They didn't listen to her when <laughs> he took the fucking kids and wouldn't give the um wouldn't put in the effort for a criminal investigation. Like, literally calling Mildred's mom on the fucking phone to say, I'm about to come and kill Mildred at the fucking hospital where she lay damn near in a stress-induced coma over his bitch ass all these different things they never found john until this moment and even now they see this abuse and there's a police station under the under the courthouse they ask the police to go out the back the police say no you walk out the front like everybody else
1: what the fuck (laughs) i'm like i i'm just trying to like understand the police were saying or doing to get around having to deal with this shit because this is years of some runaround of clearly an abused woman you got kids that are fucking kidnapped and it's just like and now the nigga just runs off after her at the fucking court and they're with their dick in their hand like who like this man put his hand on the wall talking about gotcha bitch like what the fuck and then they're not ability to be escorted out discreetly which is what they usually do in shit like this so that's fucked up
0: it's extremely fucked up and but mind you they looked at his history and granted her a lifetime restraining order
1: didn't look at his history and think that we should take this more seriously a long time ago they didn't
0: and so i mean we, we can hear from both sides. So, I mean, John immediately, he tries to link with an attorney to get his kids back. And Mildred gets those kids and goes into protection. She moves the mm-hmm. fuck out of Dodge. John now cannot find her. But eventually he does end up figuring out where the fuck she's at. And so he still has lead, mind you. And I want to end this with telling y'all about how these shootings start and again this is going to be the ending of part one but i'm going to tell y'all how 2002 played out in the beginning so it's february 16 2002 kenya nicole cook was at home while her aunt was making errands she had just moved in and was she was running from an abusive relationship herself but She was working, about to go to school, you know, she was trying to get her life together. Her baby was asleep upstairs and she had just put food on when she hears the knock at the door. On the flip side of this, Issa Nichols, Mildred's best friend, had left her niece, Kenya, to basically go run errands and pick her daughter up from a sleepover. When she arrived home at her residence, she had sent her daughter inside to go open the garage door because the garage remote wasn't working. Her daughter comes back to the car and you can see fear all over this baby's face, like baby was mortified. And Issa's asking her like, baby, what's wrong? Why didn't you open up the garage door? She said that Kenya was on the floor and the house was smoky. Issa Nichols walked in to find her niece had been shot in the face and she was the first victim gunned down by Lee Boyd Malvo. I'm looking at your face and this is going to be the end of part one,
1: (laughs) y'all. Oh, (laughs) my God. What the fuck? I'm, like, trying to make sense of it. I'm, like, trying to like, this is what it all climaxed up to was to this girl getting shot in the face. In the house.
0: Because Lee was, um, not Lee, but uh, John was pissed at the fact that Issa really was there for Mildred, had helped her acquire her divorce, had been with her in the hospital, and this is how we kick it off with the murder of her niece, who had been running away from an abusive relationship herself, shot her square in the face.
1: That's fucking terrible.
0: It is. And y'all, this is going to be the end of part one. Coco, tell me what you
1: think. I think that these cases are a lot deeper than I really anticipated. And I know you kind of warned me of that and gave me that as a heads up. Like, I didn't expect for both of their backgrounds to be as extensive as they are and how they kind of intertwine and feed off of each other. Like He found someone that is just vulnerable and manipulated the fuck out of them and now look at him doing dirty work.
0: And um, just... uh... What do you say it when, um, when you give details about the end before, what do you call it?
1: You said it earlier. I don't even fucking know. <laughs> when I
0: said that John was executed.
1: Oh, spoiler alert.
0: Oh yeah, spoiler alert, bestie. So basically, Lee, he's still in prison for these murders. I believe he recently just did an appeal and it was denied. And yes, good. But I want to know what do you think as far as we can see how he was mentally unraveled by John beaten and brutalized all of his childhood life met John when he was dying from from fucking bacterial infection and then see the rigorous training that he went through and I also want to point out before you give me your answer that when they are eventually caught and separated Lee basically starts to go back to
1: who he was. Like I said, I think it's just a prime example of John who's looking he can manipulate, he can victimize, he they're vulnerable. And unfortunately, Lee was that person. Lee was the perfect opportunity for him to carry out this crazy ass bullshit. And it's just it's sad. Like it's hard because it's I don't think place to begin with and so any type of love affection attention it's he's gonna suck onto it he's gonna attach himself but it's gonna be perceived as love even though it's not because this child has not experienced love he has a fucked up childhood he has some fucked up parents here goes this guy he's fucked up too but at least he's giving the only ounce of compassion and care that this kid has probably ever experienced outside of when he lived with that teacher and it's just it's sad you think he should still be in jail? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, our our jails and prison system do not do a good job of really just the disorders that individuals live with, especially our prisoners. They institutionalize them. They don't rehabilitate them. if not jail i would say he needs to be in some type of long term mental health facility because this man needs help he has he a lot help. of him. he has a lot of shit to process he has just there's a lot and it's not saying that it's an excuse for his behavior but i i can see why it played out the way it did because this kid he was just he was fucked to begin with he was
0: he was and i, I definitely want to thank you for joining me in part 1 I'm definitely going to kidnap you for part two. So we can talk about the rest of the murders and how they were fucking caught. And you're absolutely right. These backgrounds are extensive, but th- I feel like they are so important.
1: Oh yeah. They provide such... so much like context and clarity to what end up happening later on. Like it just, it makes, it makes sense. It
0: it, it makes fucking sense. And Honestly, it it only gets worse because, like I said, nobody was fucking safe. But, y'all, this is where we are going to end it for part one. I want to thank you for joining me. Please tell us again where we can find
1: you. Yep, you can talk. It's the CBT baddie. No periods, no underscores, no dashes. Period. <laughs> and
0: again, <laughs> thank y'all so joining me today and you know you can find me on tiktok at black girl true crime my facebook is black girl true crime podcast my instagram is black girl true crime underscore true crime podcast and again as i keep saying i'm building these platforms brick by brick any reviews that i have received i'm going to read them at the end of part two and so i want to thank y'all so much for your engagement and thank y'all for just reaching out because Like when I get an email, like, I don't know, I get so fucking giddy. And so I want to remind y'all that y'all can send case suggestions to blackgirltruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank y'all for listening and I will see y'all next week.